Hello. Hiya. It's lovely to see you all. Thank you for being here. Um, uh, where do we start? Um, last week, for those of you who are here, I was telling you a little story about a, um, a guy, a little guy who'd been on work experience um, placement with us, and he was only here a day because ultimately his father decided he didn't want him uh, part of what we were doing, which was quite interesting, because he had been working on a video <clears throat> that we showed last Wednesday night, and he was doing the subtitles to it, and when he'd got home, he'd explained to his dad what he'd been doing, and his dad said, no, you're not going back there, and we got a letter basically telling us just how in heresy we were, and that we would have to answer to God, and uh, that, you know, if we... Um, deceive these little children, it's better that a, a millstone be put round your neck and you jump into the sea, which was very funny because Danny said, I'm on my way to Scarborough, um, basically to fulfil what had been said. Anyway, the reason why I, I let you know, and you know, obviously some of you weren't there, so I hope you've understood from that very brief recap. Um, but what was very interesting, I mean, I sent back a letter, uh, I tried to be very kind and understanding, but I also uh, try to help him understand that the things that we were discussing were very much because of who we are as a church, we Q, um, we're not just going to tell people what to think, we're going to tell people how to think, and uh, I, I suggested that he might do a little bit of research himself, that you know, the substitutional penal atonement that we were discussing in our meeting only in fact came about only as far as a thousand years back. In fact, it's, it was only really coming into being in about, <clears throat> about 1500, you see. And therefore, you have to ask the question, what was going on before that? And can we get back to a more purer understanding uh, by asking questions? And um, anyway, I sent back that letter and, it, you know, I haven't had a reply, but I sent back that letter. The thing was, though, on was it Sunday morning... Uh, we suddenly finds out who this father is and it made total sense because he was on, was it, uh, what? Yeah, but what was the programme he was on on Sunday morning? This morning. And he's actually, uh, he used to be a gladiator and he was called Ace, so anybody who remembers that far back. Um, and um, after his life of incredible freedom and what he would now class as incredible worldliness, he found God and has basically swung the pendulum so far the other way that now he's telling everybody how bad they are and what they need to do to sort themselves out. And it really helps you understand that uh, there's a real problem, isn't there, when that is what happens to somebody, supposedly finding the Lord and finding this incredible, uh, what we would call a more beautiful gospel, but it becomes incredibly judgmental and uh, ooh, I don't know what else to say about it, but you know, to the point that he's now going around teaching people that they better change their ways or else they're going to burn and you think, yeah, have your fun, go on, you have your fun for 40 years and then suddenly you decide that you're going to become a a saint and, uh, and tell everybody else how to live. It's really quite interesting, isn't it? So that, I just wanted to fill you in on that. Now, 
as usual, I, well, as I say as usual, I go through an awful thing where I, I get so dry, I don't know whether I've got some sort of, well, I don't know what's going on, but my mouth, I feel as though I've been chewing cotton wool. Because I get very nervous, so I hope you'll help me a little bit tonight. But um, I called tonight's study, and uh, I hope I can get it over to you, uh, how it's come over to me this afternoon because it's not something that I've been working on for a long time. Uh, up until 12 o'clock, I really had nothing to say and I'm just being honest with you. And then from 12 o'clock, some sort of a, a great flow of revelation came and um, it all seemed to come together and I, I feel I've got something of, of interest for you. Um, but when I entitled it Seeing With Your Third Eye, um, it was a bit of a teaser really. Because I know for a fact that if I'd have said, seeing with the eye of faith, you'd have thought, oh, like, here we go, or, oh, you know. But as soon as the, the, some of the young people came in, they said, I didn't know you had a third eye. Oh, I thought, yeah, it worked already. We've got a bit of intrigue going on. Um, what's really interesting about words that we use, we get very afraid. And I think over the years... Um, Christianity has not done itself any favours by deciding that there are certain words that were very much um, precious to them and they, me they meant very particular things and were very unhappy if people used them in a different way or tried to use it to explain something else. Because I can tell you, if you look at lots of the religions of the world, you can find that there's a lot of stuff within them that's the same. You can't get away from it. And whether you want to use a fra phrase, seeing with the eye of faith, or seeing with your third eye, or whatever, it really doesn't make any difference for me because what's really happening is they're tapping in to something beyond the natural. Now, we all know we've got two eyes. And most of the time, uh, we think that our reality is based on what we see with our two eyes. And sadly, it's our greatest downfall because, and we'll, I'll, I'll go into it a little bit more in detail, but I want to just start here by saying that what we see with our two eyes that we call reality is so confusing, even in the context that everything that we see is put into categories of right and wrong, good and bad, light and dark, uh, all of those contrasting things and that's what we're seeing with these two eyes. And we've got to try and make sense of our world, make sense of our emotions, make sense of who we are, what we're doing, because of what we see is then translated to us. Does that, does that make sense? Now, if that's all we see and that's all we've got, it's going to be particularly negative and sad because what do you do? And we're going to get onto it a little bit later to talk about the fact that most of the time, none of us are clever enough to really figure out what is good and what is bad. We think we do. Some of us can say, oh, well, it's very, very clear that, you know, X is bad and, and Y is good. But there are many things that we don't really understand the depth or the mystery or the real, uh, <laughs> well, I don't know what word to use, that, that, that what, what really these things are dynamically made up of. Um, so, 
I used a phrase on um, Sunday night, and it was the, we were talking about the kingdom of heaven. And um, I believe that what that phrase now really means to me is to actually live life, and I've written it on here, and I, maybe we can write some extra things on the board as we go along. But for me, the kingdom of heaven is like a metaphor for living life out of a transformed consciousness. And uh, that to me has really made sense just, just recently because what I find that there is a, a lot of emphasis on words, uh, like for instance, people who look at the kingdom of heaven, they immediately think of going to heaven. When we die, going to heaven. Rather it being a way of living. So living out of a transformed consciousness. And you could say then, that what is the opposite of living out of a transformed consciousness is actually living in a state of unconsciousness, which you actually could use the word that sounds a bit like death. Now, isn't it funny that we use death uh, as words in the Bible to explain a state, but we never think of death as being just a state of unconsciousness, of unknowing looking through our two natural eyes instead of looking through this third eye or the eye of faith which comes out of this transformed consciousness. Now, um, there are so many words uh, that have been mistranslated into English and we'll, we'll have a look at some of them in a while. And um, when I talked about on Sunday night that Jesus preached the kingdom of heaven, I believe that that message has got subtly changed to what we now call the message of salvation. And uh, we're not going to talk about that tonight, but we have talked about it in the past. That when the Bible and Jesus talks about the coming wrath that has been translated into the coming wrath is God's wrath and people are going to be punished for their sin, etc. Um, was more about the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. And when Jesus said, if you listen to my words, you will be saved. He was saying, if you listen to what I'm saying and you flee to the mountains, when the Romans come, you will actually be saved because you won't be here. So there was some real practical truth about what he was saying. And um, by his death, he was actually bringing to, the, to an end an old religious covenant, which was needed to be brought to an end because religion was just absolutely dominate the whole horizon and by his death he put an end to it but what we've got from all that is what's called the gospel of salvation which is a total different trajectory and what we have is is Jesus and God being painted in this incredibly pagan picture because it's not unlike any other god roman greek Sumerian, Babylonian, whatever, than has ever gone before. So what we have to understand then is that some of the words, and, I, and the reason why, and I've already said, these words have been mistranslated into English when the Bible was translated into English only back in the 1600s, which gave us a total different trajectory of what words meant which then formulated our understanding. Now, we mentioned last week that part of the uh, 1611 and the time of Calvin and Luther was all about the fact that, it that the whole thing of salvation became a very legal contract. It was about law, 
It was about us breaking God's law and about the fact that somebody had to pay the price of that law. And in essence, while that sounds like a, a clever idea, as I said, it wasn't the idea that had been right from the beginning. Anyway, just leaving that aside for a while and we'll come back to it in a, in a bit. But what I'm really trying to say is that once you've understood that words have been mistranslated and you start to read them in the Bible, which I know a lot of people tend not to read it anymore, but if you read the Bible then with the new understanding of the new translation or the correct translation of the words, it gives you a total different trajectory and it's really quite fantastic. It's only very sad that often we don't do the study enough to find these things out, which is why we often say here there was a mischief that took place to take it away from what it was meant to be. So anyway, um, words like sinful nature, you've heard words like that, the flesh, uh, or we could use even the word in a psychological way, the ego, you could say are, are the words that explain what it's like when we don't live, live according to this eye of faith and third eye, but according to what we see with our, our two eyes. So we could say then that a life um, living out of a, this transformed consciousness, it's a world that we, we can create by seeing just differently, singly rather than dually. Now I've brought that word now in dually because dualism is often the problem. And it's a concept that we, we have as human beings that's crept into our understanding over the centuries, that it's to do with having two aspects of something. It's a contrast between two concepts. We have light and dark, we have good and evil, we have flesh and the spirit, we even have God and the devil. You see how it immediately pans out? And in order to make sense of our world, we label things and we divide them all into objects, subjects, you know, inside and out, them and us, either or. I, I hope I'm making this clear. And of course, we interpret life and even God by the differentiation of these things, because we can say, that is that, that is that, and that's how we live, by, by this dividing uh, mechanism. Um, and of course, it's, it's wonderful in one sense, because it's what makes me unique and special, and it's what sets me apart from you, even though you're unique and special, but it's what makes us different. And so it sounds all right, but what happens in our maturity, we actually find that that very concept, it means we live life reacting to and dividing from. Now, I want you just to get that in your head. It means everything that you do from one day to the next, we react to and we divide from. Because usually speaking, it's about survival. We say to ourselves, hang on a minute, I don't know if I like the look of this, if, if I don't separate myself from it, then it might do me harm or whatever. Um, and equally, when we feel as though um, somebody is stealing our thunder, I don't even know what words to use, we immediately want to say, hang on a minute, that wasn't right. I, I'm right. And we get into this whole, whole issue of separating things. Now, I believe that what Jesus called us into in what I believe was his message of the kingdom of heaven and this living life out of a transformed consciousness 
is actually what we've talked about many times and we're going to keep beating the drum of it. It's a call to live in oneness and it's a call to live in wholeness. Now, I didn't say holiness. I said wholeness. And there's a big difference. And again, we're back to trajectory. The church, because of its understanding of law and, and, and the whole legal aspect and sin and sacrifice, immediately see the need for holiness because it's about being pure or right enough to please a holy God. But if that's not what God's asking for, he's asking for wholeness, then it means that we have to go a very different way about it and understand it very differently. So I want to just, just introduce a word here and, and maybe you could just put it on the board for me. It's the word integrity. And many people misunderstand this word. And you'll say, well, I didn't know that was in the Bible. Probably isn't, but I'm just using it to make a point. The word integrity is often used in the context of honesty. We might use the phrase, oh, so-and-so is a really wonderful person. They've got real in integrity. And it usually is because we feel that they're upstanding. They generally are straightforward. They tell the truth and they're living, you know, above board. But in fact, that's been <laughs> messed with because integrity actually comes from the word to integrate. And integrate is when you don't separate things and divide. It means you keep everything in, in a, a, a togetherness. So it's integrated, right? And um, what happens with most of us, and we're back to this dualism, we we are not living lives of integrity because we, we co compartmentalise our stuff into separate boxes and often we put, put it away for a while and then we'll bring it out and have a look at it, then we'll put it away and then we'll look at this one and then we'll, oh, well, I'll deal with this. But it's never all put under the same microscope for the single eye or the third eye to actually be looking at it all at once and, and expecting that singularity of, of, of vision to affect it all. We say, I'll just look at this now and I'll look at, look at that. So um, another way of, of putting it when we talk about integrity is, um, or should I say, it's, it's not what it is. We would say that if a person is one thing in one place, but something else in another place, that would be a lack of integrity and actually that is the truth because it means that something is uh, being put away in a box and locked away on this occasion but when I'm in another place I take it out and put it on a little bit like a coat. So when we live life dividing the world into bits and pieces um, we can never reach wholeness and, and basically instead of having uh, a piece about our lives. We're always trying to divide and conquer. Think about it, divide and conquer. Now you might say, no, I don't live my life like that. Well, I get with people on a regular basis whose lives are really full of the turmoil of trying to divide the, the good stuff over here and enjoy it and the bad stuff over there so it doesn't come, come near me instead of actually saying, do you know what? This is all one thing it's all something that I've got to 
basically put into a seamless and undivided life. And uh, that's really what we mean to live a life out of transformed consciousness. It's not dividing things up. It's living with, a, with a, 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 an undivided heart. And, and I wrote down here, David prayed. He said, give me an undivided heart, O oh Lord. And, and as I thought about that today, I thought there's not many prayers that I feel I can often pray. But I thought today, do you know, oh, I can grab that one. I like the idea of that one. Um, so like the prodigal son... We must come to our senses about how we look at the world. We live our lives with this dualistic attitude, dividing things up in order to conquer rather than it being seamless and um, undivided. Um, but like the prodigal son, we must come to our senses that we're not quite seeing things in the right way. And um, the word that we often use, and you can write this on the board for me if you will, repentance is a word that we think, yeah, that's it. In order to change our mind about things, we need to repent. But this is another word that's, again, been totally mistranslated, and it's, it's so very sad. Because the word that repentance actually comes from is a word called metanoia. And it's made up of, 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 of sort of three segments, and it means together with thought. Now, Put repentance next to that, and I, I bet you haven't remotely put them together. Together with thought, and then the word repentance. What does repentance mean to you guys? I mean, does anybody wants to throw it at me? What does the word conjure up for you? Right? Give up, or saying sorry, and uh, what did you say, Joel? Saying sorry, right, so it's attached to a wrongdoing that we're trying to put right. But in fact, it's got nothing to do with that. It's together with thought. And it actually means a mind shift of a radical nature. But that metanoia became repentance. Now, gets even more, you know, interesting because this English word repentance was borrowed from the Latin which means penance. Now that makes a little bit of sense. Repentance, penance. Um, because it was part of this already happening, because remember the Latin Vulgate was one of the, the earliest uh, Bibles which was starting to go down the tra trajectory of our need of a saviour based on our sinful nature and the fact that penance had to be paid in order to put things right with, with God. So another little thing happened. They added re to penance um, to make it repentance uh, to, lead, to lead people um, to believe that they had to, again, uh, win, win God's favour by their saying that they were sorry and penance, acts of penance. And this was formally through what we, what we recognise and remember is, as indulgences. So you paid, and I mean, this was a horrendous time, because people were incredibly poor and, you know, had very little, but they were expected out of their nothingness to pay indulgences to, to win the favour of God. When you look at it, it, it was particularly wicked thing to do. But anyway, let's, let's move on. So let me tell you what in Greek the word metanoia means. Metanoia is not a confession of sins, but a change of mind. 
But despite this, the Latin fathers insisted in translating the word as do penance, following the Roman Catholic teaching on doing penance in order to win God's favour. Now listen to this, I think this is so interesting. In 1430, Lorenzo Valler, a Catholic theologian, began a critical study of Jerome's Latin Vulgate, that was the Bible that existed at that time in Latin, and he pointed out many mistakes that Jerome had made. Now I could add in there, do you remember we had the, the talk about where Lucifer got his origin from? That was the Latin Vulgate, because until then, Lucifer was just a, a, a lowercase l. It wasn't a name, and actually all it meant was light, light bringer, and the mor a morning star, a star that the Romans uh, recognised uh, that came up with the sun on a morning. So it had only very, well, you could normal... Um, uh, explanations but all of a sudden we get Lucifer uh, as this fallen angel capital L this is who he is so I've added it, that in there but sadly the people who love the the Vulgate it says here the Vulgate only crowd that sounds good doesn't it? Vulgate only crowd uh, a Valor's Day forced him to renounce many of the changes that he noted needing changing um, and wouldn't allow the change of the translation of the word metanoia so here we are, 500 years later, well, it's more, probably 1,000 years later, stuck with a translation of a word that takes you down a particular path and its origins are nothing like it. It just means a change of mind. Now, listen to this. I wonder why. See, if the words are translated properly, you go out of business. And think about it. If it wasn't translated, do penance, where would they have got their indulgences from? They wouldn't have paid him, would they? Unless you tell somebody you've got to pay and make God happy, you know, to, to rid you of your sins. So they kept a wrong translation purely to take from people. Now, I find that really, it, it gets me here and I get mad about it. But anyway, so the business of religion desperately needs paying and returning customers. And we've often said here that potentially we have gone down the track of saying, that's not we're, what we're about. We have preached freedom here and we're, we're, we don't mind if basically birds fly from the nest because birds were meant to fly free. But when people are under the, uh, under the sense of fear, it's amazing how many of them people will, will flock to what they believe is, is a solution and an answer. Anyway, so, there's the scripture that I asked uh, Phil to put on. It's Isaiah 58. Um, and it gives a lovely, I think, a meaning to the word metanoia. And it says this. We've got it there. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways your ways. For as, high as, the, are the heaven, for as the heavens are higher than the earth. I'm singing a song, that's why I'm doing it wrong. Um, so are my ways higher than yours. Now, the way that it's been written here, I think it helps. Your thoughts were distanced from God's thoughts as the heavens are higher than the earth. Uh, and just like the rain and the snow would cancel that distance and saturate the soil to awaken its seed, so shall my word be that proceeds from my mouth. This is where the gospel becomes so powerful since it appeals to our conscious, conscience to reason together with our original design, that authentic thought that the mind of God 
is realized again. So repentance, which is about the fact that thinking differently, is instead of God's thoughts being up there and my thoughts being down here, all of a sudden they're brought together as one and I think the thoughts that God is, God's thinking and I see the things that he is thinking because it's been brought together. That distance has been, what's the word I'm looking for? Ah, eradicated. Whereas what we, what we try and do is keep things separated, but it's actually been brought together. And so the mind of God is realized. Now I love the word realized. Think about it. Realized. Make real. Now I know for a fact there are a lot of us go around wanting to believe what God believes, but we don't realize those words. They're, they're, they're in our heads or they're, they're, they're here, they're floating, but they're not realized. And what basically repentance does makes the mind of God realized in me. I think that that's absolutely incredible. I love that. The mind of God realized in me. So the distance caused by Adam's fall compared to the distance between heaven and earth is cancelled in the incarnation. So Jesus comes down, he's born as a human being, he cancels the distance between uh, the heavens and the earth and the mind of God is now realised again for, his, for us all. Metanoia suggests co-knowing with God. It's an intertwining of thought. It is to agree, to agree with God about me and I just think, think that's incredible. So repentance means the mind of God realized, made real, the mind of God made real. So we could say then, and I was talking about how words then take on a different uh, meaning for you. The whole idea then of being a sinner and sinning as opposed to being about behavior could actually be better interpreted as the mind of God not being realized. See how simple that is. So we go from seeing um, ourselves as separate and thinking differently, thinking separate thoughts, to suddenly seeing with one eye, thinking the same thoughts, and the mind of God being what is made real within us. Now, I think that's quite wonderful. and I, I love that for me. I hope it, it is for you. Now, the thing is, what happens is the brain and the eyes, etc., uh, tend to always see things dually, and yet we taught that the heart can actually see singularly if we're if we're willing to let it. Um, now, what it says in Matthew five three, if you want to put that up, it says, "Have we got it there?" Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, in another translation, spirit is actually interpreted heart. Uh, for theirs is the the, the kingdom, here we got, the kingdom of heaven. So if we are poor in heart, um, and actually, why have we got poor there? It's pure in my, the one I read at home, so that's a bit odd. Oh, well, anyway, um, point is, though, for theirs is the kingdom. So what we talk about in the context of here 
is that when we are willing to, to live according to this, what's being said there, we enter into the possibility of living life out of a transformed consciousness. So let's just move on there. Um, now, just take that off for a minute because I don't want to confuse people and I'll fix it for anybody who, who gets upset with me for, um, translate, for, for saying it wrong. But again, you see, pure religion again has mistranslated it to mean some sort of moral behaviour, which is back into that dualistic idea, which is about what is right and what is wrong. And the thing is, religion will always be that way because religion, as we said before, has got to keep the business of religion going and it will never stop going while ever there is something to to sort out to put right or or to fix or whatever so um jesus wasn't talking about becoming perfect by modifying our behavior but it was about again seeing all of life as whole because being pure in heart means bringing everything together and seeing everything as whole so we come back to what I said at the beginning. Um, we've continued uh, to try and focus on holiness rather than wholeness, uh, which, you know, I know that for me, I'm learning that it, it's about wholeness. And we're going to, I'll make this more clear in a little while because some of you might be saying, I know I don't go with that because there are things that we've got to sort out, but follow, follow me and you, you'll, you'll get with me in a bit. Um, so we often feel that restriction and repression is what actually is going to sort it, sort it out. But in fact, restriction and repression never ever brings wholeness. Um, it, it really, most of the time, all it does, and this is you know particularly my view of it, it just creates a simmering volcano that's ready, waiting at some point to erupt. And we think that we can keep it suppressed, we think we can keep it down, but ultimately it's, it's going to explode. So something greater is required than that. So I want to move now to the story of the wheat and the tares, which is in Matthew 13, uh, verse 30. And I don't know if you, you, well, yeah, no. Can I read it from you? on there okay it might be different from mine again and then I'm going to wonder what's going on by the way do you know that there are 40 versions of the bible so just so that you know when anybody's doing any study you, you normally can't check out all 40 and um you know the ones that you go for are the ones that you think are the the most um what you would call a uh, a genuine translation but even then you'd have to go through quite a few by cancelling others out to come to that same thought so I'm not saying that to justify myself but it, it can be quite quite a difficult difficult thing and so you're looking for the spirit of what's being said um you know in, in what we find so there's this story about the wheat and the tares and I'll just give you a little bit of background because some of you might know it uh, some might not but it's basically the go-to story when we are talking about this whole idea of dualism, of separating, because it's the story that sort of uh, gets us to look at the idea of who is in and who is out. So it's in a story of um, 
farming, because like I said on Sunday, you know, Jesus used parables to talk about things that, you know, they, they understood. But where we do have a problem with this story is what has tended to be the attitude is that the wheat and the tares have generally been seen as people. And it's quite interesting that the scene, it's seen as people. And again, I believe that it's because of the trajectory that we, we're on. Once you get in your head that there are them that are in and them that are out, we start to even see people where actually it's not being talked about people. And in this story at the beginning, it's very much talking about stuff. It's about wheat and it's about tares. So it's nothing to do uh, with believers uh, who believes in Jesus, that they're going to be, they're the wheat and those that don't believe in Jesus are basically the weeds. Isn't that more or less what we've, it's been suggested? So um, if you, the, the, I think we're a bit further on there, so I'll just go, hang on, just leave it there for a minute. So um, it's actually talking about stuff and what we consider good and what we consider bad. And um, what's really interesting about um, all of this is that the actual um, weed that they were talking about there was a specific, particular thing. It was called zizania. You can actually look it up. It's a particular um, grass that grew in that part of the world that when it was placed in the field alongside the wheat, you couldn't actually tell the difference between the two. Now that's very helpful because when you're thinking about it in the context of weeds and wheat, if it was a dandelion, I would be able to say, I can tell that's a dandelion, that needs to come up. I can tell that's wheat, that can stay. But that's why this story is very important because the, the wheat and the tares look exactly the same. Now, can you see how, again, we've been forced to see it in a particular way that takes us on a particular trajectory. And so, whether we believe that it's in our lives that there, is, there are these uh, wheat, wheat, wheat and tares, or whether we look at the world and we see wheat and tares, the, the truth is, um, if we're not careful, our whole idea, like the disciples said, what should we do? They go to the master and say, shall we go and pull them all up and shall we burn them all? Because that seems a reasonable thing to do. But in fact, what the, farm, uh, the farmer master tells the, um, the, the disciples, he says, no, don't do it. Let both of them grow together. Or can you just go back the, the verses before, please? Just a few of them. If possible. Yes? No? All right, just... Um, uh -huh. Don't know what I'm looking for now. Uh, there. No, he says, do we need to pull them up? And the, he says, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Now, that's massively important because what the farmer is basically saying is, look, I am so concerned about your wheat, your good stuff, that ultimately, if you start messing with this stuff that you're not really 
sure that you can identify, you're going to end up with no harvest. No harvest. And the farmer says no. Now, there's another little lovely thing about this, and it's the, the fact that he says that an enemy has done this. Now, most of you know what I feel. I don't believe in a, a, a particular entity as a devil. But even if you think of it just in the context that an enemy has done this, he says he came in the night and he's planted the seed and look what a disaster we've got. So it's, it's like sometimes these good and bad stuff that are going on in us, these contradictions, we're not even aware where they've come from because somehow in the dark of the night or whatever, it's just suddenly happened and it's there. And that really helps us a little bit with our understanding of, of how compassionate we need to be with ourselves and also how compassionate God is with us because he said to them he says an enemy has done this so I want to ask you a question what in you do you consider sinful or a tear because that's a good question to ask isn't it and what are you trying to eradicate from your life but also what are you looking at and because of what you see in your life are you then looking at someone else's life and saying, oh, that needs to be eradicated? Because that's what we do. Because once we recognise something in us that we think is wrong, it's definitely it'll be wrong in somebody else's life. So we end it up not only trying to pull up the seeds in our own garden, that most of the time we're not even sure which they are, but we're also looking over our neighbour's fence Deciding what's the weeds in their garden. Now, um, it's really, I find this powerful because I know for a fact that I spent my early life, because of the trajectory that we were on, trying to look for this holiness instead of wholeness. So it became, we were, you know, policemen of, of looking for weeds. And, um, you know, that's, that's not always a, a nice job to have and it certainly needs to go. Um, let me just find where I am now. So here's the point. In the story, the enemy had come by night and planted weeds. But in the story, that was all he had the power to do. Now think of that. It was all he had the power to do. And yet, I think that whoever that enemy was, was sat back laughing his head off because he knew that the tear police, <laughs> the tear puller-uppers were actually going to do more damage by trying to sort it out and all he had to do was plant it. Are you with me? And I, I hope you're getting this, that what we do when we live this life of dualistic thinking, we live our life trying to, what's a weed, what's a tear and what's wheat? And we're looking all the time and we're asking, we're asking, and we're not living out of this transformed consciousness, not seeing with this third eye. And I'll talk about that third eye a little bit more in a minute. Um, so, so how did Jesus then teach us to manage the weeds? And, you know, I, I want to get across to you that very, very strongly tonight, that none of us really know the difference. I, I want you to get that into your heart because there are some things that we think oh you know I don't know about that and you know I really think 
And yet we start messing with it and we've actually disrupted all the beautiful wheat that was to this side and we've lost our whole harvest of wonderful wheat because we've messed with other stuff. But Jesus said this, look, we see all this going on. Let them grow together until the harvest. Now, none of us like the idea of it all growing together until the harvest because we think the, the sooner we can eradicate this stuff that we quite, can't quite get our heads around or understand, I'm not going to feel better until I get rid of it rather than finding a way to reconcile it and see it all as working all for my own good, that's the only way that we actually can bring a, uh, an understanding of it. Now, the word uh, that's used in when it says, let them grow together, the, words, the word grow together actually is the word a thesis, which means to forgive it. Now that, I, I couldn't get my head around that when I saw it. How does grow together in English and forgive it remotely do you get me it doesn't seem to work but that's the word that they've used but it's actually the word forgive it and it's the same word that's used in um, uh, the Lord's Prayer when it says and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us so when when the, the, the story is being told and he uses this word a thesis, they know he's saying, forgive it. Forgive it. Now, I think that there's a lot of us need to do some repentance in the true sense of the word. <laughs> you know, uh, the mind of God being realized again within us. And I think we also need to do some forgiving of what we feel are the wheat and tear situation of our lives. I mean, it, it, again, this is a tough one for me because you can say, yeah, but you look across the world and look what's going on. But if you try a little bit, and I'm not political, so please forgive me if I stand on anybody's toes. But once you try to say, we will eradicate ISIS, for instance, or we will go into Syria and we will eradicate Assad, you're immediately starting war where hundreds of thousands of people are dying. Why? Because we decided to focus on something that we don't really understand and try to pull it up because we believe it's a, a weed and a tear. But look at the, the, the horrendous destruction. And so you have to ask the question, is the wisdom in this, forgive it? Because I'll tell you what, you know, you only have to get somebody then unhappy with Trump doing that to Syria, then you get the Russians who are ready to come in and do whatever, and then you've got uh, China thinking about it, and you've got um, North Korea. Now, again, I'm not political. Uh, that's all a little bit I know from the news. But what I'm trying to say is, if somebody along the line doesn't forgive it, then it just goes on. Now, somebody else might say yes, but if you don't do something about it, It'll still go on anyway. But in the context of the, of the lesson that we're learning in this story, we have to learn that there is a supernatural third eye way of looking at things which will give us a supernatural answer. Now, right at the end, basically, at the harvest, it's all pulled up 
and it's separated because I think when things get fully ripe, it's a little bit more identifiable and therefore it's more easily sorted. And one lot is put into the fire and one lot is put into the barn. Now immediately we've got this idea, ooh, the fire, that's, you know, hell and we've got heaven as, uh, you know, where everybody goes when they've, you know, they're with the wheat. But there's a lovely verse, and I think it might be verse 13, no, I don't know. It's later on where Jesus is um, interpreting the, the parable uh, to his disciples that the verse at the end says, after all this is done, it says, then the righteous will rejoice. Now that is a fantastic verse because it's attached to the end of the story, which means then that whatever is the uh, the the, the uh, exercise that has taken place, what the end result is, is righteousness prevailing and people rejoicing, which actually suggests that we're on the winning side, not on a losing side, which is really quite a wonderful thing. And I hadn't meant to, to go that way. So um, you can look at that if you want to another time. So let's look at this I thing. It's interesting that, uh, like I say, there's many truths that run through things. I love the fact that there's, in, 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 I think it's in the Egyptian um, uh, culture, there's what's called the, the pineal gland, which sits, I don't know whether it's in the middle, you know, it's sort of through here, in the middle of your head, which they reckon is like an eye and what's interesting that it's actually got nerves that the that eyes have got literally in the middle of your head now I'll, I'll, let me see where did i write it down because i just found it so interesting where was it about the nerves oh it's got oh that right this is it it has retinal tissue um and it's attached to our visual cortex right now we have not in, in in you know in english culture much focused on anything to do with that if you go and do some research it's very very interesting but technically when we operate from whether we call it that which is a literal physical thing that we all have which actually sends off sparks just like when you 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 flash a um, a lighter to, you know, to, to get a flame. The spark is the same sparks that's going off from this tiny little, it, it's tiny, it's like the size of an acorn that's in the middle of your head. But like I say, it's got this retinal tissue attached to the visual cortex. I just find that amazing. And they believed in their culture that it was what allowed them to see on a different realm, on a different level. Now, we'd say that the eye of faith does that. But you see, the eye of faith cannot operate while ever our two eyes of dualistic thinking are in the way. Now, um, I was looking at uh, the whole idea of um, uh, the, the scripture. It came to me and I was laughing about it because there's some really strange things said in the Bible. But it says this, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. And you think to yourself, well, all oh, that, we've always associated that with, oh, well, you know, if you're looking at wrong stuff and, you know, you, you, you take your eyeball out or whatever. 
But I believe that there's a, there's a more important thing there because it says, better to go into the kingdom of, of heaven with one eye than going to hell with two. Now immediately we think, oh, there we go. It's heaven as a destination, hell as, as a destination. But think about it. It's better to be in heaven, kingdom of heaven, living life, life out of a transformed consciousness with one eye than living in hell with two. Now I hope you see what I'm saying here. What is the hell that we live in most of the time? It's because of what we see. We see it on a, such a, uh, just a, a natural level and it does our heads in and that's why we create our hell on earth. I mean, there are people who are living in such turmoil because of all that, that they can see, both emotionally, physically, psychologically, all of it. And so I, I thought, well, do you know, I like that because I'm going to say, right, I'm going to pluck it out, not in the context that I'm saying you all to go and pluck out an eye, but to actually say, do you know what, I'm going to be more concerned by letting this one eye see that is attached to the kingdom of heaven, which is about a transformed consciousness, than I am about what I see on this level. Then I came to this, which just, again, blew me away. Um, Matthew 6.22 talks about the lamp of the body is the eye. The lamp of the body is the eye. If, therefore, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I'm going to read that again, because it really, is it on there? Great. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore, yes, I've jumped to the bottom bit. If therefore, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, come on, let's just look at this for a minute. How can light be darkness? Just how can it be darkness? But there it's saying it can be. So somehow, the light that has come in through an eye has actually translated into darkness and not light. I, I, I thought that was just really very, very interesting. And this is what I thought about. We all thought that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would allow us to see more and allow us to see more clearly. And in fact, it did. Because the, it says in Genesis, their eyes were opened. But open to what? Open to this dualistic idea that, yes, I can see lots of things. I can see good and evil. I can see all the contrasting stuff. But when they continued to measure by dualistic thinking, right and wrong, good and evil, all it did was bring into them darkness. It wasn't light. It was darkness. And so, in all honesty, we have to ask ourselves, how much of what we think we have coming in in the context of enlightenment is actually darkness because we're actually focusing on a dualistic idea of good and bad, right and wrong? I, I, I getting my point there. So, here's the point. What, what do you see? Do you see wheat? Do you see tears? 
Do you see, wheat and tares, in fact, it doesn't matter. The truth is, it really doesn't matter because if we are looking through it with our single eye of faith, none of it matters because we're forgiving it and we're letting it grow together until the harvest, which God says, it's my angels who are going to sort that out. Now, let's not get hung up about who the angels are, but the point is it's out of our hands. We're actually released to say, look, don't you worry about it. The harvest is what I'm involved with, what I'm going to sort, and when it comes time, it's going to be sorted and everything's going to be all right. So don't blind yourself, and I, and I know a lot of people do, so worried because we're back to the whole idea of having to be something particular to please God. Back to that business of holiness rather than wholeness. And so we live our lives very much judging ourselves. And so we can see the wheat and we can get very proud. We can see the tears and get very low self-esteem. Or we can see a bit of both and we say, no, I only want one. And so we're busy out with the shovel trying to dig up the, the bad stuff and basically wrecking everything because we're not just forgiving it. Now, um, I wrote here, it takes a humility and a courage to carry both the dark and light, the tears and the wheat inside the same container. This container, it takes a lot of courage to actually say, no, do you know what? I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to forgive it. I'm not going to strive. I'm not going to fight. Because remember what happens when we're up against these things. It's what we understand as the, the fight or flight thing. It gets triggered in your body and you're immediately trying to figure stuff out. And, and you know what happens there, you know, don't we? Um, we have to trust that at the harvest, it's all going to be sorted. So when we repent, we actually um, realise the mind of God again. We realise it. We make it real within us. We see with a single eye. We live life out of a transformed consciousness rather than living in an unconscious state which actually, in my head now, I'm thinking, yeah, that means death, doesn't it? You know, the scriptures that I, that I think about, you know, um, and, and, and you, you know, you who were once dead in your trans trespasses and sins, I'm thinking, that makes diff totally different sense to me now. You who were once in an unconscious state because you looked through two natural eyes rather than the third eye of faith, you have been brought to life. Why? Because... The, the, the distance that God closed up between my thoughts and his thoughts, it's been, it's been closed up by the, inc the incarnation, by Jesus coming. It's actually been made in, into one. So, um, I've said about better to enter heaven with, with one eye. I said that, didn't I? Okay, yeah. Um, Okay, so in summing up, because I've, I've nearly finished, this is what I want to end with. And, I, and I, I'm grateful for a guy called Stan Tyra. He wrote this and uh, I jotted it down. It says this, immaturity is always either or thinking. Awakened maturity 
is more of a compassionate knowing. Either or, and I was just talking about this, produces flight, fight, responses. And at the time, it seems like wisdom in the heat of the moment. So in the heat of the moment, you know, we're pulling up and we're doing. Just like eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but ultimately, rather than it being light, it actually becomes darkness. Um, however, and this, this I think is so powerful, this gives you no power as Christ to hold things together or to transcend. The dualistic mind only knows things by comparison where one side is idealized and the other side is demonized. And remember, that's what will happen. And that's why people get really into a terrible state. There is no room for love. Love, however, always hangs crucified to self between those contradictions, holding it together, both the saint and the sinner, heaven and earth, spirit and the senses. In fact, the greater opposites you can hold together, the more obvious the depth of your journey and transformation. Most of us prefer one side or the other, which frees us from any responsibility to love or forgive. Listen, we're going to talk about forgiveness on Sunday, but the truth is, if we only have wheat in our garden, there are, and, and you've only got wheat in your garden, it's, he's right. There is never any opportunity to learn what it means to forgive and that's why this story is, is so powerful because he's saying, look, let them grow together and forgive it. Wait till the harvest. Don't get itching to sort it. Just leave it alone. And then this is how it ends. It's absolutely lovely. To be Christ-like is to hang between the good and bad, thieves of every issue, just like the cross with a thief on either side and hold them together personally paying the price for their reconciliation and announcing that it all ends there with you. It's where people's pain will no longer be projected, but is carried, crucified, buried, risen and ascended. And I, I think that's a, a lovely uh, place to end. Now, like I said, I use that phrase, the third eye, because I don't want... Uh, just to get you thinking, oh, we're not, we're not talking about anything special here because, do you know, familiarity really does breed contempt. We are talking about something within you, whether, and I mean, I was looking at this um, uh, just this afternoon and um, the Greeks believed that this third eye was responsible for our realms of thought. It's elevated us to a state um, to be able to see things in a completely different way. This is you know, cultures, it meant a spiritual awakening to the Buddhist. Uh, Hinduism, it, it's this third eye that, that you look at. And then when I was on a site which had nothing to do with Christianity, it says, but in Christianity, it's the lamp of the body. And I thought, whoa, I'd already looked at that. And I'm thinking, yes. And it's what it's doing is saying, when we see with this single eye, not trying to, to, to separate everything, but reconcile it, stand in the tension and reconcile it, that's where we get the understanding of the kingdom of heaven being outworked in our lives. So I'm going to leave it there and I hope that's 
helped you. And um, if you've got any questions, I won't say ask them now, but write them down and we can always uh, have a look at them. But I know for a fact that I'm learning to, first of all, read the Bible with a very different understanding of words. And I'm finding it's lighting it all up for me again. Um, it's, it's really been quite fantastic. Uh, we could, you know, I said a while back I was going to tell you what the lake of fire was, which we might get around to at some point. That's very interesting because it's amazing how the Bible in many ways was written very coded. I remember when Joel spoke about Revelation and he was saying how, you know, um, uh, John who wrote it, he was basically saying, I want to get a message to these people, but if I tell them as it is, I'm going to get killed. So I've got to put it in some sort of, of code to get it over. Well, I actually believe that if we just see words uh, that have got life in them that is not attached to this substitutional penal atonement trajectory, you find that it all becomes wonderfully alive. And we realise that we can live out of this uh, transformed consciousness. So are you going to forgive some things this week? Are you going to let some things grow together and actually leave it for the harvest and uh, see what happens? All right, thank you. I'm done.